Welcome to Pixelate Radio on the web at getpixelated.com. That's getpixel, the number eight, ed.com. Now, here's your host, Craig Shoemaker. Ready. Aim. Ah, yes. Today, we're talking to Adaptive Path Senior Interaction Designer Kim Lennox and design technologist Dan Harrelson about avoiding the ready-fire-aim syndrome in UX design. Dan and Kim are going to share their experiences and offer some practical advice on how to think through what you're building. For show notes, please head over to getpixelated.com slash shows slash RFA. So I want to tell you a little bit about UX in the wild. We have a... Uh, We've got a YouTube channel set up for Infragistics over at, uh, well, YouTube of all places. And as I'm visiting different websites and, and doing the things that I do, and I run across a user experience that I particularly like, I'll create a video for it and uh, you know explain to you what I like and what, what I think we can learn from it. So the first one that's up is about advertising being done right. And I was uh, reading this blog, James Coulter's web blog, and <laughs> he had uh, an ad being served up on his on his blog for Dice, which allowed you to cycle through the Dilbert comic ads and, and the way that this advertisement engaged you and, and got you working with it, I thought was was cool. I mean, it's a widget. It's it's the types of things that we'd seen before, but uh, it caught my attention and, and I thought it was pretty cool. So you can watch the video on the show notes page, or you can also go to shrinkster.com slash YJI and you can check out the video there. Well, uh, I'm getting getting uh, everything tied up and, and ready to head out for Tech Ed. Um, I'm going to be leaving very soon. Um, we're going to be at recording at the Infragistics booth. That's uh, booth number 1208. And uh, I'm going to be talking to Dave Platt and Kate Gregory, Billy Hollis, Steve Smith, Ted Neward, Yudi DeHaan, Pete LePage, and uh, I'm sure a lot of other people. So if you get a chance to check us out, we're going to be recording at, at a number of different times and, and the schedules are still kind of in flux on the people that I'm talking to. But if I am recording and there's someone there that you're interested in and you want to ask some questions, please feel free to do that. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so booth number 1208, make sure to check us out. I think I mentioned this last time, but I'll give it one more shout out. We're, we're going to be at Party with Palermo on Monday night. Uh, this coming up at the Glow Lounge in Orlando. Um, it's free. You know, it's uh, you can't beat that. All you have to do is bring a business card and you get in and we can, uh, can all hang out together. So let's welcome in our guests, Kim Lennox and Dan Harrelson from Adaptive Path. I originally met up with them at uh, Mix when they did a session on research-based design. I thought it'd be fun to talk to them a little bit about that and some of the other insights that they have on building great user experiences. So here's Dan and Kim. Well, Dan and Kim, welcome to the show. Um, it's it's fun to have you on because... Uh, you guys work for, for in my mind, one of the, I think one of the coolest companies uh, in our space, uh, Adaptive Path. Why don't you uh, kick us off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do for the company? Um, this is Kim here. I um, am a senior interaction designer at Adaptive Path. And the area that I focus on mostly is in the mobile space. So um, handheld devices and um, mobile phones, but a, a variety of different um, interfaces. And it, again, it's about the experience of the um, designing the appropriate experience. Um, so mobile is in context and things. So there's a lot of um, research that we do out in the field. Um, so it's, it's a lot of fun. 
And uh, my role here is as a design technologist. Uh, it's a bit of a unique position in the company. Uh, we have, we're primarily staffed with researchers, strategists, and uh, designers. And I bring the perspective of the developer of the, the technology to, to our, our design projects, uh, making sure that what we're designing can work, making sure that our, our concepts and our ideas uh, mesh with the skill sets of our clients so that they can be successful in building out what we're going to be, what we're, we propose, uh, and also working with uh, doing some, some actual prototyping, some, some actual diving into code a bit myself to, to kind of bring our, our idea concepts to, to life. You know, sometimes the, the best way that um, somebody inside of a client organization can really get our, the, the ideas that we have um, is to actually play with, with something that, that's working. Now, one of the things that makes Adaptive Path unique is that you have such a focus on research-based design. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, it, it, the research, um, we don't necessarily always do research, but we find that the clients that are coming to us have um, challenges that are um, kind of open-ended or not un well understood. Um, we, we don't necessarily advocate for research for everything, um, but if you're moving into a new market or if you're designing something that um, doesn't exist in the marketplace um, and you want to better understand the user's motivations, behaviors, and what their needs are, um, that research is appropriate for that. And the nice thing about doing the research is it will often lead to a variety of opportunities that when you started the project you might not have expected. Okay. So when when you find yourself needing to use this type of research, how do you, do you use a like a, a research firm, or do you have a certain principles that you go on in order to gather this? What does it look like when you're doing that? Uh, well, generally we start out with um, all of our projects with having a discovery phase where we meet with the stakeholders of you know our clients. Um, we meet with the um, design team, the engineering team, the executive team. And um, we find out um, first and foremost what the um, objective is of our project, but also the larger picture of what are the, you know, the goals of their product design in general. Um, and from that, we will um, figure out what type of research would be appropriate for the project that we're working on. And then from there, we will um, build out a project, um, a research plan, um, which could be um, in-home interviews, it could be um, research that uh, we're doing observational research. Oftentimes we will try to encourage our clients to um, get their teams to come with us. So um, they'll either sit in on a call and um, listen to an interview or they will um, come with us to the actual interview. And what we find is that um, when engineers and designers come to these um, research interviews, they suddenly have a lot more empathy for their user and they start <laughs> to understand who their user is and they can start designing for that user. It's very powerful if, if there's a, you know, if you have an opportunity as an engineer or designer to participate in the research, I know that it means that you're not coding, but it also enables you to see so much more by attending those particular um, research uh, interviews. So I, I highly recommend it if you get that opportunity. So, I mean, w what's happening is it, is it basically that they're just realizing that people don't 
think like engineers or are, are you seeing that people who are placed in front of the software that they write, I mean, they're just interacting with it in a totally differently of, of how they expected it to happen. Yeah, exactly. But what will happen often is um, we design products with features and functions as and the technology. Those that, That's generally how products are designed. And um, when you do research, instead of designing for features and functions and technology, you're designing for the unmet needs and the pain points and the opportunities that are based on the user's motivations and behaviors. And so that's a very different thing. Um, we, we had a mobile client recently that um, we did an ethnography study on, um, and they discovered that while they had all of these different applications that were available, that most users were using one application, and they were um, modifying, um, using that one application and modifying it to meet their needs. And it was a huge revelation for the design team because they had been building all of these features and functions in every single separate application when the users weren't using it in the way that they had designed it or the way they had intended it. And so that, having that knowledge informed how they designed their future applications. So it was very powerful for them. Now, a, a lot of this kind of sounds reminiscent in the, in the software world to, to one of the tenets of extreme programming where you have... Um, someone from the, the user side as, as a part of the development team. Do, Dan, do you see any of, of those types of disciplines kind of spilling over? Oh, definitely. You know, being able to, to, um, to have that representative inside of the engineering piece is, is really, really important. I mean, one of the, one of the, 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 the biggest things that we've found um, very, very valuable is getting rid of that, you know, you just, you had to be there um, uh, comment. You know, getting, you know, making it so that the, so that the, the engineer or the, or the, the business person um, isn't, isn't hearing from the researcher, oh, you know, you just, you should have been there and seen, you know, this mother of four, you know, using your software in her kitchen. You know, it's that, it's that they actually were there. They actually were participating in having that. And so they can bring that knowledge back to the, to the overall team. Um, I mean, the reality of, of software development is that there's going to be a point where, where, where engineers are going to be, you know, thrust in the middle of their, of, of, of actual implementation, you know, where, where we're finished with a lot of that, the heavy um, upfront design work, and now they're, they're building their tool, but the design still happens. Design happens as, you, as you're coding, as you run into roadblocks, as you have to make decisions, and each time that you have to make a decision about what am I going to do here? How am I going to make this interface work? How am I going to make this system happen? Um, how am I going to to hide away some of the um, some of the, the the robustness from the users so they don't have to see it? You know, if, if an engineer can, instead of saying, "Well, what would I want?" You know, if they can say, "What would my user want?" You know, they, their product ends up to be much much more approachable by the end user. And we all use a lot of different, you know, thousands of websites and, and probably tens of different pieces of software a day. And, and this might be kind of a, a real abstract question, but can, can either of you point to some things of where there's just common areas where, where people stop short? 
one that I've seen quite frequently is is the the willingness of somebody doing um, implementation that happens a lot on on the web, less on software, where there's a, there's a willingness to to um, provide a bad user experience to a, to a, to a user um, simply because um, it's too difficult to make it better. You know, simply because they, they, they see that there's a performance problem, that they can't find a way to hide that performance problem away from the user, they can't um, figure out a more elegant solution, or they're, they're under a deadline, or, um, or there, there's just there's something out there that, that, they, that, that, that bad user experience mixed all the way into the final shipping product, you know, simply because it was, it was kind of too tough to tackle it. Um, and if you can, if you can, you know, ingrain a notion in, in your in your team that that's just not acceptable. That you need you need to to have an elegant user experience. And sure, you know, we all, we all understand that you know technology has limitations. But working within those limitations, you know, finding out how can I still make this the best possible user experience, you know, um, is 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 something that you know is, is often overlooked. And if we were to split them up into like big chunks, would you, what else would you add to the list if we were to say, you know, looking at user interface and then looking at performance and then looking at error handling, what else would you add to that? Um, you know, sometimes there's, there's, um, there's limitations or there's, there's common ways that frameworks work, you know, so we have all these different web frameworks. Um, and they all they all buy out of the box you know work in a certain way they they expect users to go uh, they expect the, the the program to go through certain certain logical um, steps or they have certain um, out of the box um, ways of presenting data and when when a developer simply just uses what they what they what that toolkit offers versus you know stepping back and saying okay what is what what do I what do I really need to accomplish here and figuring out you know um, whether or not they, they need to, to to tweak the the framework a bit um, that 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 sort of thing helps quite a bit. Yeah, I think it's definitely easy to fall in the trap of this is uh, at least for for us Microsoft developers this is what they're offering and so it's what I'm going to use. Yeah. What are the what are the, the the base controls that I'm that I'm given? And you know, um, you know, every every rev, you know, the, the the controls that Microsoft ships with, or new versions um, from companies like you know Telerik or, or or Rad or whatever, you know, get better and better. But um, but there's there's the ability to to customize those specifically for what you need and what your users need is really important. Very cool. Now, Kim, you wrote a blog post about um, how many of your team's ideas are on the iPhone. And yeah. I, I really enjoyed this post. And it's, tell me a little bit about what it's like overcoming some of the inertia of, of your new ideas and dealing with your, your clients. In your post, and you were saying that you know often uh, many of the ideas that we saw on the iPhone may have been uh, ideas that people thought of over and over before. And... Mm -hmm. Perhaps you took it to the client and you said, well, we want to do this. And they say, well, it's too expensive or it's never been done before or it's just eye candy. We don't need it. Um, and, and what I thought the point of your post was, was really good was that, you know, here's a company that took some leadership. They went out and took a chance and, and it really paid off. Um, mm -hmm. So if someone's coming up and, and trying to pitch uh, a new way of, 
uh, presenting an application to the user, a, a different type of user experience. What can you tell people about uh, overcoming that inertia or overcoming the resistance of people to try something new? Well, it, it's, it's a huge challenge in each um, company. So there, and I think that's why I specifically put that post out there is because what, what I've noticed in design trends in general um, is that there's, there are these trends that happen in design and there are these, we, while we're all designing in our secret little worlds and you know, confidentiality and proprietary and all of that, we're actually all heading in the same direction. And so, you know, the, the touchscreen display and um, the, you know, using animation to um, help the user understand the spatial places of where they are within the navigation system, all of those things were um, technologically not possible a few years ago, but as the technology got better, we were able to start designing for those things. And the challenge was getting the it really it's on the executive side, getting them to convincing them that those things were needed and worthwhile. And so uh, how to solve it, um, I, you know, I gave up at Samsung, frankly. Um, <laughs> I, as hard as it was, there were so many great things, and there still are so many great things happening at Samsung. And um, I was just challenged to be able to get those ideas out there. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I personally left Samsung and went to a consulting firm where I could, the thing that's fun about consulting firms is when you're on an internal team, you have all these great ideas and for whatever reason, those ideas aren't being listened to. But if you get an outside consultant to come in, then somehow those, those um, same ideas are suddenly um, more important. So I had that happen at Samsung with um, some consulting firms. We would have the same ideas, but the consulting firm said it, and it would be better. And the so, law of external guruism. Yeah, <laughs> and so, so I decided to you know, champion the cause outside of Samsung um, in the hopes that you know, I can help internal teams um, move, move things forward. So... Um, the, the end result basically in, in my little world is um, I'm able to have a much bigger impact um, by it being that external guru. Um, and, but as far as you know, being an internal team, the, as I recommended in the blog post, is um, I think that the iPod or the iPhone has really shaken up everyone. And what I'm seeing in the industry now is there's going to be a lot of me too's coming out. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to push beyond the me too's. And the thing that we can get from the iPhone is saying that, how do I put this into words? Um, we really need to focus on the user experience. And so you can use the iPhone as a great case study to push experience design forward within your company and um, shake up the you know, your internal workings of the company to um, push things forward. The fear that I have, though, is a lot of me too's. Right. So, uh, my, my fear is that a lot of people are going to be following the iPhone rather than saying, okay, the, you know, we've just raised the bar. Now where can we go past that? 
because really when you look at what the iPhone is doing, it's pretty darn simple. Um, it's just that they were able to package it all together and make it into a really desirable product. Yeah, you really can't say that your product is revolutionary or better than another product when in the reality you're just trying to match feature for feature, right. you know, what the other product does. The reality is then, then what you're saying is, is that that product is great, I need to be as great as, as it. And when, you know, if your marketing spin is that we're revolutionary, we're better, we're, we're, we're different, you know, but you're not, with that you're just playing catch up, you're, you're kind of lying to your, your consumers. You need, you need to figure out how you can carve out a different space in the market and go after, go after something different out there, you know? Right. Do you think a lot of that comes from just listening, listening to your, your customers and, and not just what they... I th there was a good quote where somebody said, you know, nobody ever asked for a Macintosh computer to have the icons it does and, and do everything. They just wanted something that was easy to use. And so yeah, right. do, you, do you find that just by listening and trying to, to really identify with that empathy and, and figure out really what, what they, the user wants? Well, it's, it's that mixed with your own knowledge of what's possible or what might be possible. So the, the famous... Um, quote from Henry Ford was, um, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Right. So he rethought the problem. And so I, I think that the, you know, it, there is a lot to be said for designing for the user, but, you know, sometimes the users don't really know what they want. Right. We have to envision something beyond and that's why sometimes it's about asking the right questions, you know. Um, going into, um, again, my, I'll use my, my uh, example of, you know, a mother of three, you know, sitting in, in her suburban home and saying, what do you really want out of a, out of a, new, a new cell phone or a new piece of software or uh, a, new, a new financial planning website? You know, what do you want out of those things? She'll probably say, I don't know. I, I don't know what I want, you know. But if you, but if you instead just kind of sit back and observe and ask her about her day and ask her about the problems that she has to tackle, you know, what you'll, what you'll start to get are a list of a list of pain points in her life. You know, things about maybe having to to, to balance the, the the family's finances, having to deal with a lack of time. You know, and use these elements to have to to drive your your feature set in your in your design forward. You know, because you know she's she's not a designer. You know that that your users aren't are necessarily going to be able to sit there and say, I need you know a touchscreen this and a faster that and whatever. They're going to say, I'm having a problem doing this and if I could have something that solves that problem great and then your job as a designer is to make that something that solves their problem well thank you very much uh, both of you I uh, that's a show uh, I just uh, appreciate you coming and spend the time with us today thanks Greg now if you'd like some more from Kim Lennox and Dan Harrelson they both blog over at adaptive path that's adaptivepath.com so you can check out all of their information I want to extend a big thanks to them for coming on the show and, and sharing their insights with us. For some shows coming up, um, next week we're going to be talking to Jeffrey Richter and then John Robbins, and then we'll probably have some coverage from TechEd. So thanks a lot for checking us out. Until next time, this is Craig Shoemaker, and I'll talk to you soon. Pixelate Radio, on the web at getpixelated.com. That's get, pixel, the number eight, ed.com. All rights reserved, copyright 2008. Infragistics, powering the presentation layer.
Infragistics.com.